if there's a code for power couples, I feel like it should include that like you're each other's primary source of trust. Welcome to Cringe Watchers, the podcast where we invite our expert friends to binge watch TV and talk about sex. I'm Lori Edelman. And I'm Layla Darabi. For this episode, we watched The Diplomat and asked Chloe Cooney, can ambition and romance coexist? Lori, are you binging or are you cringing? I am binging this week a super goofy and fun show called Working Moms on Netflix. And I think it's very appropriate for our topic today because it's light, it is fluffy, and it addresses every single element of motherhood and parenthood that you could imagine. Um, So it's a good counterweight to the show that we're discussing on today's episode, The Diplomat, which literally does not have a child (laughs) or a parent uh, (laughs) present (laughs) for the majority of the show. But Working Moms, it is from straight from the mind of a Canadian-American actress named Katherine Reitman. And this show has really uh, been her breakout show. It is quite feminist, I would say, but not in, at all dogmatically so. There are gross-out scenes. There's gags. There's just a lot of kooky plot lines and silliness and it's a pretty enjoyable light watch so if you need something to just kind of literally binge and not feel guilty about it but also not have to think too hard about it I highly recommend that sounds incredible I'm gonna check that out (laughs) please do how about you Layla are you binging or cringing this week I think I'm going through a cringy cranky phase but I am cringing at Cherry picking of data in journalism, which is not new, but specifically a new wave of articles claiming to be evidence-based, talking about how young people are really losing out professionally because they're all working from home and they don't get to learn workplace culture. I think you could write a series of articles making that point, a series of articles countering that point. I've seen articles and data showing that young people are getting more ahead in their careers or are advancing better or adapting better to work from home than anybody else. And I've seen articles saying you don't learn uh, and you don't get to network around the water cooler if you're if you're working from home. Ultimately, I think we should all have some flexibility, embrace the flexibility and embrace the fact that if anything, this pandemic has showed us that we don't need to be all together in an office all the time for companies and and organizations to function at all. And we had made it happen when we were all working from home, just the way we made it happen when we were all working out of offices. And I just want to be a champion of flexibility, especially for young people, for uh, valuing and prioritizing mental health in general among all of us, for parents who clearly are benefiting from flexible work schedules, and uh, and for those of us who work in global health across many time zones. I like going to the office. I have the choice. I have the luxury of uh, being childless and working in a place where I feel safe going into the office, but I really love the flexibility to take my really early morning calls working across time zones from home. I used to do them from home, dash to the office, roll in late, feel an aesthetic pressure to stay late because I was rolling in late, and then having incredibly long work days. And now I feel like I can make my schedule, uh, walk my dog during the lunch 
hour, clear my head. And I think that young people are benefiting from that as well. And I have been so impressed with the young people I work with, the new people joining our organization, for the amount of networking they're able to do remotely. They have coffee hours, happy hours, breakout groups, deep friendships, and you don't need to be in person for that. So boo cherry picking data. Preach. Absolutely hear you. And it's no surprise that Um, Young people are also resisting in ways big and small, including sometimes by quiet quitting. I share your cringe, especially around the cherry picking of data, knowing also that sometimes that's being done by billionaires who have like corporate leases on office buildings in Midtown Manhattan that are sitting empty. So they're hardly like, (laughs) they're hardly like um, objective observers. Yes. So maybe not the most diplomatically relayed argument, but we are here today to talk about a diplomat, the one featured in the Netflix show, The Diplomat, starring everybody's favorite, Carrie Russell, or at least people who are exactly my age's favorite, Carrie Russell. This is a show that looks at a career foreign service officer and asks the question, what if a frontline in the trenches, relationship builder who had a, a fairly wonky government career was airdropped into the more ceremonial role of politically appointed ambassador. And uh, it takes off with uh, the character that Carrie Russell plays of Kate Weiland, who thinks that she's going to be sent to Afghanistan for a very rough and tumble ambassadorship and is instead politically named to represent the United States to the United Kingdom with all the pomp and circumstance that comes with it. That's right. And I will say, I mean, one of the things I do enjoy and appreciate about this show is that it's about that in a very specific way. And it's also like just about gender and ambition in a way that isn't at all specific to the foreign service. So even if you did not watch The Diplomat, you may enjoy today's episode if you have ever wrestled with being an ambitious woman, uh, a career woman, or trying to balance uh, relationships and career or trying to, you know, be a person with a marginalized identity in a workplace. So there are a lot of relatable moments around that interspersed between like some urgent geopolitical crises. Um, so, you know, Carrie Russell's character gets like spills on her clothing after basically pulling an all nighter before an important meeting, or, you know, she struggles with like when to eat, you know, when to fit in meals during busy work days or how to deal with menstruating while on work travel. So there's like a lot of really relatable, good examples of that, even if the backdrop does happen to be like a countryside residence where the fate of the free world is being decided. There are a lot of urgent, uh, intense issues being discussed at all times on the beautiful grounds of beautiful estates. I think the way that you get from Felicity, the frumpy college student, to Kate Wylan, the intentionally frumpy, serious ambassador, is that in between she had to play that role as a Russian spy on the Americans. That's right. And I think this show is like also exactly in the middle of those shows in the sense that it's kind of a step down in intensity from the Americans. Like the Americans was very serious, some some real violence, some real bloodshed. The stakes never kind of get that high here in this show, but it still packs an emotional punch at times, and it certainly delivers on the soap and the steam. So we got into that as well with our guest today. Never fear. 
Our guest today is Chloe Cooney, our former colleague from Planned Parenthood. Chloe is uh, an incredible policy analyst, a DC-based, self-described policy wonk. She built Planned Parenthood's global foreign policy program, meaning everyone knows that Planned Parenthood is a voice in Washington on sexual reproductive health and rights, but they didn't always weigh in on foreign policy and the the role of the U.S. in the rest of the world. And Chloe really built out that team at the same time that you and I, Lori, were, were at Planned Parenthood Global. And she has been not only a great colleague, but someone who politely and in a non-condescending way, constantly explains to me how the government works, how diplomacy works, how uh, how things like the supply chain work. Today, she works in global vaccine equity, doing a lot of diplomacy and negotiations to make sure that when we develop new vaccines to prevent diseases, that the whole world has equitable access, which involves a lot of international conversations, a lot of slow moving, slow policy wins. So she is incredibly diplomatic, but also incredibly patient. That's right. And among all of those reasons, there was just great conversation to be had. In addition, she also happens to be one half of a power couple. Her wife is also a DC-based global health expert. And so we just felt like she's the perfect person to talk about this show with. She also, in her spare time, writes screenplays. So she has a sense of the uh, writing side of this. And it's just a great friend and colleague. So we really enjoyed talking to her. We had a far reaching conversation. We got a little personal. We talked about our own ambition and how we balance that with our own partners. So we hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome, Chloe. Thank you so much for joining Cringe Watchers. It feels less like having a guest and more like we're catching up. This is so exciting to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm especially excited to get your expert insights on power couples as half of a power couple yourself. I don't know how expert I am on that, but I am excited to talk about it for sure. Own your expertise, Chloe, in all areas. Okay, this is a feminist podcast. <laughs> we asked you to watch The Diplomat on Netflix, which I know your wife had had been watching without you, and you said you were going to catch up. Did you get all the way through season uh, episode five? I got all the way through episode five. I was very excited to have a reason to do it, um, and my wife was even more excited that I was finally watching a show that she was watching um, somewhat at the same time. And I have some interesting feelings about it that she doesn't share. So I'm curious now about the second half of the season. Ooh. We wanted to, instead of going scene by scene, we sometimes frame our conversations mm-hmm. around um, different scenes within one episode. We wanted to go couple by couple with The Diplomat because there are some juicy pairings here. And I think we have to start off with the official tandem couple, which is a, a concept with which I was familiar, but not a term I knew before The Diplomat. I know that there are State Department couples who travel the world and peg their relationships to one another. I know it's something that happens in academia. There are a lot of different reasons why couples in the same field would be moving together and have jobs dependent on one another. But to kick us off, I think we want to start thinking about Hal and Kate, and or, or Kate and Hal should probably lead with the current ambassador, and get as a level setting question, your definition of power couple? I don't have a definition coming into this, but I think it's where the two halves are, have pretty, you know, driving careers. I I think it tends to be an overlapping fields. Like you don't tend to talk about a power couple if like they're in completely different fields. 
and there's an overlap there. There's a sense of like power between the two of them because they're both in that sector. And, and there's sort of a co-equal sense of career, you know, status and, you know, where they are in their career. I guess that's what I would say. I think that's a terrible definition, though, is it? There's no right answer. I, I love that. And, and it's a good insight because I think it's true that, you know, you could have a couple with maybe the same wealth, maybe even the same titles. But if it's like private sector versus NGO, there's just something less power coupley about it. So I think you've named yeah. something important. And of course, for Kate and Hal in this show, they are very much perhaps too much in the exact same line of work. Um, so it makes for a very, very complicated relationship dynamic. And Chloe, I'm hoping you can help us unpack this relationship because I personally do not know what to make of it. Like, what the hell is going on? They're divorcing, they're fucking, they're ambitious, they are need each other, but they're kind of like stepping all over each other. They each have their own trysts of a kind happening. Yes, yes. They're seemingly non-monogamous, but it hasn't yet to be named as such. What is going on with them and, and how does this like track to your understanding of the typical power couple? One thing I'll say is, so this was the one thing that I commented on to my wife uh, initially. I was like, well, I'm not into the husband. And she was like, interesting. She goes, I think it's complicated. And I was sort of surprised. And I was like, does he get more sympathetic over the episodes? Because I didn't start out and I haven't really turned on him yet. I still am pretty skeptical in his choices. I'm not digging the way he um, is doing a lot behind her back in very manipulative ways. And I actually think that's, you know, if there's a code for power couples, I feel like it should include that, like, you're each other's primary source of trust. And like, my wife and I often talk about having the wife cone right? So like there's the cones of silence in your world and there are people you share certain things with, but the wife cone is like the deepest cone and things that are like truly in, you know, no one else can know that you're not supposed to breathe it out loud is in the wife cone. And they don't seem to have that in the same, they do a little bit. She shares stuff, but he's clearly acting on her behalf in ways she's not consenting to. And I find that very troubling. I love the wife cone. That is super cute and adorable. Just to say, because sometimes when I say this is in the code of silence, people are like, do you not trust me? It's not ever invoked in a lack of trust. It's invoked in a signaling. So you know where to s store a piece of information. You know, this isn't a, it's for your eyes only. This isn't a, you know, circle of, you know, small friends, et cetera. Amazing. Because I completely credit you with bringing code of silence into my vocabulary. <laughs> I like to be transparent, just clear about where the information's filed. Cone of silence and writ large are Chloeisms that I use to this day. Can I add my own Chloeism to the mix? Which I I cannot stop saying. If I tried, I think that's right, and I think that's right. I say that all the time, and I'm not sure there's a there there. I didn't know these were. <laughs> I did know. I think that's right, and it's funny you say that because my wife makes that. I've come full circle on it. <laughs> I remember Layla, you you saying you liked it, but yeah, my wife gets annoyed. She's like, "Are you saying it's right, or are you saying you're not sure?" I don't understand the I think. I just think that we don't have a way to move on sometimes when we're agreeing with someone, uh, and so it's a way to keep the conversation going. It's it's the most audible of audible listening. Yes, and also I'm trying to signal I'm thinking about it. I've thought about it and concluded. <laughs> I view it and use it as a total power move. I'm just going to own that. But I draw strength 
in doing that from knowing Chloe that that you do it too. So I don't use it to agree. I use it to say like my voice matters and I think that's right. <laughs> Maybe that's how I've been using it all along and I didn't realize it. Maybe that's my subconscious. That's funny. I like that. Can power couples be across non-romantic relationships? Because maybe you're just dropping little power plays across different areas. Can you have a power friendship couple? Well, I think there's a power couple in this show, which is I'm really bad at the, the character names, but Kate and the Austin. Yeah, yes. exactly. Okay, we're going to get to there. We'll get there. We've got massive tangent. <laughs> I do have one other big thought though on Kate and Hal I wanted to say, please, which is this is very much a couple without children. And that is like such a striking aspect of that to me watching it. It made me very curious about not that I don't think about this a lot cuz I think about it every day, but what the caretaking responsibilities that come into a relationship, how that shapes your interactions, and they don't have that at all. And also their choices have nothing to do. I mean just I found myself watching as they're talking about, you know, are we going to Afghanistan, London, et cetera? I mean, just the logistics of choices in my life. And I'm not anywhere near an ambassador or anything like that. But travel is the overwhelming stressor in our like day-to-day life is like, do you know when you're going to travel? Is it overlapping with mine? Will we have time to plan in advance? And if, you know, unavoidably there's an overlapping trip, is there anyone who can watch our son? And if there isn't, who's going to be the one to, you know, bow out of the thing they needed to do? And that is a, like, constant stressor. And everyone I know who works in an international space that is an over with young kids, that is an overwhelming stressor. And they don't have that. So that was, I, I think, just interesting. That's across the show. There are no parents in these couples. Yeah, you're right. Hmm. It's such a good point. The other couple who uh, we wanted to talk about are the not yet tandem, but potentially tandem couple of Idra and Stuart. And they are also discussing, do we want to pin our careers to one another? Again, completely childless, dogless. Well, they flirt with uh, the idea of children. But only if there's going to be nuclear catastrophe, and this seems like the right moment to do it. It's like a whim, almost. For, again, pointing to their own desires, more so than like the desire to bring a new life into the world well also interestingly i do wonder about this with like with the foreign service aspect of this because it is a a particular kind of career people have you know where you move around a lot you don't plant roots there's a sense of like when i'm done with this wheel right because there's always sort of a next tour how long is that going to last and it feels like that comes out in that conversation a little bit what's the threshold at which you are like yes now i'll make those choices do any of us know any couples whose careers are actually equal who are in those settings? Because I have a fair number of friends who are current or former foreign service officers. I know uh, a couple of current or former ambassadors. And I can't say that any of those people are in career equal relationships. It's one spouse following the career of the other. I think it helps if you start with money. Like if you had money from the beginning not at a certain point in your career. And so the whole time you can afford like top tier childcare. Well, it's interesting the way they talk about the word wife a lot in the show with, you know, Hal's like, I'm the wife. And it is, I mean, that's part of my thinking on the children front too, is like, there's a function of a wife in that world, right? The person that's helping manage doing the rest of it with your life. 
And he is the wife in a lot of ways. I thought he was right to say it in some ways. I agree. I don't see it a lot, but I think there is, it's often that the system is built on a spouse that is not working. Yeah, there's that meme for like the quiet quitting movement uh, where they're always posting this meme about how, you know, if you ever are feeling really tired or overwhelmed by your nine to five, just remember this whole system is built on the idea that there's a spouse taking care of literally everything else in your life except for work at home. And so I think that's like unattributed. I don't know where it comes from, but the basic gist carries through. It's not specific to like foreign service. No, but I think it's an acute example There's of it. There's a particular, exactly. Yeah. And Layla, to your point, I think there are people who take, there's a little bit of taking turns in couples yeah. that but have to But the people move. I know who've taken turns, it's one person's in the foreign service and the other person's turn is once they leave. So I think, uh, you know, my former boss from my first job is a gay man who was not, I think, legally married to his partner at the time of his last posting. And it, as part of leaving the foreign service told me, you know, one of the things that frustrated me about being in the foreign service was that if there was an emergency, they would have evacuated our pets, but not my partner. Yeah. Bam. And so the partner slash husband, you know, uh, they did several tours. They lived in in different places together, uh, but eventually he left and wrote a resignation letter leaving saying it's in part because this, you know, not only does my government not recognize at that time. Uh, this is a big deal. They do now recognize same-sex partnerships in, in the foreign service and our government does, but also because of his, his partner's career. And when, when he left, they went on. And now I would say the other half of that partner is the, is the breadwinner and the former foreign service officer has worked largely a nonprofit work while the, while the husband has gone on to do business things. And so in some ways, the other partners now work now drives, you know, where they live and, and some decisions that they make. But again, it's, it's, it's that taking of turns which I think happens in a lot of a lot of partnerships. Yeah, that's interesting. I do think for in the space of the foreign service and diplomacy, the queer aspect is also very complicated. You know, with U.S. laws having shifted, I think you see a lot more queer foreign service officers able to have their you know families with them. But I mean, with the laws that are changing around the world, it's not necessarily safe to do that. Right. I also wonder about people entering the foreign service single. I mean, it is daunting enough to, to, if your goal is to find a life partner, it is daunting enough to do that in one place, but to know that you're constantly moving and you're constantly going to be not only the minority in a new country, but in an expat bubble in a new country, uh, seems like you're really narrowing that dating pool. I think that's uh, right. Which is why I think, I, I really do love Idra and, and Stuart. I don't know what you guys think. I mean, in some ways they're, they're perfect characters. They bring diversity to the show. They bring a hip haircut to the show. They bring, uh, they bring a, a, a fun repartee to the show, but they do seem to me more equal at their current stations than Hal and Kate. And I love the way one couple is looking at the other saying, should we go there? These the Hal and Kate are a warning sign of what could go wrong. It's interesting about Stuart, that character, because he's a little bit, he reminds me a little bit of Hal in that they both are in retreat a little bit in their career. So you find out that Stuart joined the Foreign Service because he sort of burned out on the heartbreak of domestic politics. But his, you get the sense his heart is still kind of in that. So it's interesting that he's, I agree with you that they're both in the similar place in their career, but I'm not sure it's what the career he wants either, like ultimately. I'm just having a thought about their relationship, which is that I feel like there's a little bit of a double standard about people who hook up at work or like have relationships at work, which is that 
if you really are good at your job and love your work, then like, of course, you're, you know, going to connect with the people in that work. But if you're like less ambitious, or like work is less your life, then it's just like, considered tacky or a bad idea. Thoughts? I feel like it's also just like a lot of shifting norms around that in general. Mm, mm-hmm. Like if you're a power couple, it's okay. Yeah, but I mean, if you're a power couple, there's probably some level of like decision-making authority that makes it more problematic. Um, I guess if it's co-equal, perhaps, you know, but it's hard to imagine any environment where that's in the same organization, in the same employer. I think there's a difference with people you meet in your profession out and about, but I think it's complicated the higher up you are in a job that you know, and the more power you have in an institution to be dating internally. Yeah, it's sort of the catch-22, right, where your pool is narrow, but you also should probably... Have even more discretion. Yes, you should have even more discretion at work. <laughs> I, coincidentally, after we decided to do this show and this episode, I had dinner last week with a group of friends, including um, a European friend who is currently an ambassador to several Southern African countries. And one of the things he was saying about being kind of, in our age range is that it's really hard to make friends. All the other ambassadors are much older. And then everyone else he knows in the country works for him or reports to him. And then he has, they don't have kids. He's got a a young partner who travels with them. And I would say their partnership is very equal, but their careers are not. And I found that so interesting. It's so isolating. I don't think you need to be an ambassador to experience that. I think the higher up you get in your career, the harder it is to have friendships or romantic relationships at work or the more complicated. I was going to say, I think the exact same dynamic applies for academics, maybe people who are living in college towns, especially like if you're a single queer person living in a very small college town, like what is your dating pool in that situation? And then of course there's, rightfully so, a lot of judgment and and stigma around dating a student. But there are scenarios where you could be very similar in age to if you're, you know, in a graduate setting. And and these are debates that are active on on college campuses or university settings, I should say. As you know, I grew up on three different college campuses, uh, including a very isolated college town. But it's so interesting to hear you frame it that way, Lori, because I did grow up with a lot of stigma around professors who dated their grad students. Now that I am older and have been to grad school and realize that the age and power dynamics between professors and grad students is different from professors and undergrads and also depends so much on the person. But the other really hot power dynamic topic and gossip in academic settings are spousal hires, which is a term I think pretty unique to academia, which is if you're a high profile academic and an institution is recruiting you, they often also offer a job to your spouse. I have known many people who've been tandem couples because it's extremely hard as academics to find jobs in the same place. You essentially need one of you to be a famous academic to be recruited in that way. It's a very odd power dynamic. And I think it comes with a lot of stigma. I don't know, do you guys, how do you feel about a spousal hire situation? I feel empathetic to the struggle to find a placement for two, for two people. I understand the practicality of that, but it's complicated. Um, it sort of speaks to just the, I think, the industry, if you can call it that as a whole, as being fairly untenable in a lot of ways. And again, kind of based on having one partner not working, right? Or or not working in in the same career and having a lot of flexibility in location. I love that part where 
Idra and, and Stuart are talking and she, I can't remember if it's this episode. She says, you know how I asked you to go to Cairo? That was a terrible idea. It's fucked them and it's mostly fucked her. Look at her career. And he says, I think her career is doing just fine because she technically has the post of ambassador. And she says, no, she's a frontline person. Like she's given up everything, her identity and her career goals to put him ahead. And not only that, now she's sitting in this embassy uh, estate and she wants to be in Kabul. And I thought that was, that was a really interesting moment. I love, I, I kind of love Idra as a lens on Kate and Hal. I liked that moment too. And I, um, and it also is part of what underlies my feelings about Hal because we find out he was also cooking up this whole arrangement for her, knowing she wanted to be in Kabul. I think it also was such an important moment because it gets at this kind of suspicion that I tend to have around power couples, which is, you know, is this really your true person or is there some like higher level of convenience that's driving this chemistry or are those two things even like opposite, right? So, you know, there's this idea that, you know, if you're posting a lot about your partner on social media, you're the one that is actually like more insecure or more in trouble in your relationship, that there's like a direct correlation between posting a lot and like having issues in your relationship. And like, I, I have sort of like the same hypothesis about at times about the power couple, which is like, can this just be a coincidence that you all find yourselves conveniently like in love and in the same field and at the same level of ambition? Like sometimes things look good on paper in relationships that actually just don't feed what the person needs. So I'm curious if you all like have thoughts about that. Well, I think there's definitely like power that grows by a power couple, right? Like you have access to each other's networks in a very intimate way and not necessarily in like a unethical way, but like who's coming over for dinner? You know, who are you socializing with? And your sort of networks grow together in that way. And I think there does create, you know, a, a center of power in that sense. So I think some of it can be organic. I guess in the best sense, it's organic. But I certainly think there's plenty of, you know, couples of convenience out there. I do wonder, though, on it, the gender dynamic of it. Because I do think if they weren't a man and a woman, would the dynamic feel different between the two of them? And I think there is much more sensitivity for her, you know, and, and you hear Adra speaking to this a little bit as well. Like, I think a lens of it is as being a woman, you know, traveling with her husband or her partner, her male partner, there's a, I think, a difference than if she were a woman with a woman or two men. But you guys have more experience with that dynamic than I do. So I'm curious if you agree with that. <laughs> so I was actually thinking about each of your partners and my own partnership and, and thinking about, like, do you think at, at social events that you and your partner, sort of hold forth equally. I don't consider my marriage a, a power couple dumb. We have very different relationships with, I'm very ambitious and my husband's goals are, are very different. And he, he has a lot of values, but I think putting his career at the top of his list of what he chooses to identify himself with is not at all who he is. And it's probably a good influence on me. If we go to parties, he's really good at, at one-on-one conversations. And I'm like the one telling a story to a group. I think that that works really well in our dynamic. And I know a lot of couples like that, where one person is the behind the scenes and one person sort of holds forth. Yeah. Uh, but I, the, the power couple tension, I think, is what happens when two people hold forth. No. Right, right. How would you rank your own coupledom? I would ask you. I don't know. What do you think? 
you know both of us. I think you two are both, I would I would say pretty equal in, in the way we work a room. In the way you work a room or, or <laughs> in, around a dinner party table. I probably had strong views about this before the pandemic. I think we just have had emotionally very different responses to socializing post-pandemic in that like I hit sort of a just parenting and working at home. I just like sort of tapped out my emotional capacity and I'm like still recovering from that. And so my socialization levels and are, are much lower, my tolerance, I guess. So I'm much more in a like, who gets a piece of my time these days? I, it's it's a, a much higher threshold. And whereas I think Jen is, is much more you know, you wouldn't think that she's much more extroverted, but she actually is in some ways. I like the idea that it changes over time and that you have a partner who can like ebb and flow on that with you um, over the years. Like, I think that's appealing. Like to me, the sweet spot is having someone that I can talk to about my work and who can like help me make decisions about my career based on their experiences in their career, there's an understanding and like, it's not foreign to them to be like a people manager, for example, or to have to make decisions that like impact people and to deal with the emotional fallout of that, which is, you know, something that I deal with a lot in my professional life. But then, yeah, I don't need them to be like a specific holder of relationships in my exact sector, like with the exact same people. Like, I think it's nice that my partner is sort of somewhat adjacent and has like expertise and experience in the global South, which is a area of overlap for us, but not necessarily in my specific area of work. Mm. Yeah. This complimentary. Yeah. I think it would drive me crazy if like we were working with the exact same people, like what Kate and Hal are doing. I kind of love that she has the power to send him out of the room, though. <laughs> yeah. Should we talk about their non-monogamy? Because I'm, like, obsessed. Yes. I want to talk about the bait and switch. We meet Cecilia, and it feels like, oh, no, Austin Denison is married. I don't know why it's oh, no, because Kate is also married. I felt an emotional oh, no. Yeah, I did, too, come to think of it. Lori, I know you have lots of thoughts about the tryst, so you set that up. I am obsessed with this character, I feel like this show needs Cecilia Dennison. Like she was just the breath of fresh air that I needed and she came at the right time. Yeah, there was like just a series of boom, 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 subverted expectations. Like one, Austin Dennison is not married. This is his sister. Two, she's like depressed and smoking weed and like not what you expected, but is like looking fabulous all along. And then three, they're hooking up, but four, he can't get hard. Uh, but five, it doesn't matter. Like it was just like an emotional roller coaster um, in the best way he possible. He can't get hard, but for Kate. Right, but for Kate. <laughs> Little feminist fantasy in there. I'm not mad at it. I don't know, Chloe, like what did you make of the lake scene? Was there a, some metaphor there about geopolitical dicks? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's, there's definitely a very surface level metaphor there about impotence and, and his feeling of power and where he is. Although... Seemingly, it's not a new issue. It seems like it's known to be a, a, a longstanding issue. So it does make you wonder what the arrangement has been the whole time. Is this simply because they're on the verge of divorce or is this how they've been? You know, I kind of, it, what I was thinking about watching it was more about Kate and Austin and how their intimacy was its own kind of tryst. You know, they were sort of having geopolitical trysts. And in some ways, it seemed like that was the more intimate one 
in the if you compared the two couples of Cecilia and Hal and Austin and Kate, Kate and Austin's was actually more intimate. And again, Hal's and Cecilia's were was a little bit of like we're both in. She's in retreat as well. Like there's just a lot of characters who were in retreat in this show that I find also interesting just from from the geopolitics of it. So yeah, I found the you know what sort of gets someone excited right like what's getting someone excited in this show and it's not romance <laughs> Helen Kate seem to have a definition of uh cheating is purely technical uh and it's it's not cheating unless it's fucking and uh you can do anything else you want it, it, yeah it's really I mean I maybe I'm reading too much out of that well I can't tell because because they're yeah because they're in the verge of is it because they're in this she said it's over or is or is it he knows from experience he can only get it up for her, which means this has been compared and contrasted at different points in time. Wait, the, the earlier scene where he's pulled aside or kidnapped by the Iranian informant. Uh, oh, right. She, right. She's, I know it looks like he was slinking off and getting in a car, but but Hal doesn't cheat. My husband doesn't cheat. It, it, I sometimes wish he would because it would make things easier. Oh, right. I forgot about that. That's right. Yeah, I, I hope that we get some more clarity because it would be it would be interesting to know. But I'm curious, Chloe, because you're like USG and government and foreign service adjacent. Do you feel like it's an open secret that many of these couples are open? I don't think it's an not as like a constant that I'm aware of. I imagine it's probably true. I do think it's very true that people who are in the line of work of, you know, in the field in dangerous situations, there's a lot of you know, circumstantial partnerships that happen. Have either of you seen that book, Emergency Sex? No, but I know of people in our field who have had that together in the past. This is not an endorsement for Emergency Sex, the book. The Emergency Sex, though, I think is emblematic of, you know, uh, white Americans stationed abroad in dangerous settings, finding each other for trysts. And maybe needing that in some ways to get excited. That's the problematic aspect of it, right, is the sort of exoticization that you need. But I'm all for finding comfort in, an, in a crisis. But Right. But comfort in a crisis is an interesting frame because I think of uh, that kind of disaster relationship, like disaster zone relationship, as everything is dangerous and it makes you take more risks or it puts risk in perspective. Whereas the, the Hal and Cecilia coming together is so interesting. It doesn't seem dangerous. It seems very tender in some ways. I don't know if you both felt that way. It was very surprising to me. It's maybe the most surprising thing that's happened in this whole show. I agree. I, I mean, I do think they're both sort of in a, it, it felt more like the camaraderie of finding someone when you're stuck somewhere, not the, you know, excitement in, in crisis or, or even comfort in crisis. I think that's right. And then, of course, there's also a convenience to it because then Cecilia does surface intel for Hal later in the show that, you know, he uses to, again, keep his wife, Kate, in power um, and good at her job. So it's a weird kind of cycle where I believe their tenderness and intimacy is true, but it is also, again, convenient. And you could even argue done in service of the power couple, the, the main power couple. Well, one thing this show does that I think is interesting is you're kind of getting at something which is like a tension or, or maybe a binary between is it pure and true to the, you know, feelings of intimacy and romance or whatever the relationship is versus is it in service of a goal? And I think 
all of these characters can't make that distinction. And it's not really, I don't see it as a sign of them having impure intentions. And by pure, I mean just like, you know, authentic towards the relationship. But their lives are so intertwined, it's not possible to tease them apart. And in some ways, that's a metaphor for geopolitics, right? Like you want to have this, you know, pure relation. We're allies. This is how we feel. But it's it's never that simple. And it is all complicated. And you actually can't have one without the other. You can't just sort of have a pure, you know, approach to your values in the world without recognizing all the complexities that come with that. Do you have commentary on the non-romantic plot lines of this show? I'm I'm almost scared to ask. Like, do any of these shenanigans make any sense <laughs> in your mind? My biggest thing about the show, and I like it about it, but I also... I, I sort of wish it also had a, a different quality, which is everyone's so slick, you know, everything. And that's TV. But the thing I kind of want to see and, and what I admire about people I know who work in government is it's a very like humble, nerdy and tedious at times profession in some ways. I mean, obviously, if you're the ambassador to the UK, that's pretty sexy. But I think there's a lot of mundaneness in diplomacy. But the success of it is in that mundaneness. And I kind of feel like, you know, in an effort to dramatize this, they're making everyone super slick and, you know, like an episode of 24 sort of, but it's almost to say that the mundaneness is not worthy. And I actually think the mundaneness the aspect of it is the thing worth celebrating in a lot of ways, because it's the people who are like day to day, moving the thing forward, keeping the relationships alive, that was just another takeaway is just, yeah, the slickness of it and, and the sort of effort to elevate something that I think in some ways loses a piece of its trueness. That's really spot on. I mean, I know television has to do that and they also have to reduce the number of characters. It's, yeah. so, it's like, would the chief of staff of the US be involved in all these conversations? Would the deputy chief of mission be involved in all these conversations, but no, they have to peg them. I think somehow my algorithms discovered that I was interested in this show. So I got pushed a lot of TikTok and YouTube this week about the diplomat and uh, a couple things I found really interesting. One, the show runner and creator Deborah Khan is a woman and she used to write on West Wing and then Homeland. And mm. she got the idea for this show because when they were writing for Homeland, they used to get briefings from people involved in geopolitics and a female ambassador came and briefed them. And she said to herself, she's a hero in a pantsuit. Nobody knows uh, everything that she's all these different crazy scenarios that she's gotten herself into and, and have been a part of. And I guess she told some stories. And then I saw another thing saying that JJ um, Abrams, who created Felicity, which is where Carrie Russell, the actor who plays Kate, got her start. And I'm always very attached because Felicity and I are sort of like, we started college at the same time. I was a big fan. Uh, show a lot about modernity that JJ Abrams imagined his next show, Alias as what if there was a multiverse and Felicity was sort of an international spy. And this show kind of brings together <laughs> some of those elements. But I thought the hero in the pantsuit was interesting because what we're getting isn't actual diplomacy. What we're getting is a TV writer who's heard some cool stories from an ambassador and who knows how to stoke the drama and add the right. romance. So, so we're speeding up the, the plot lines. We're speeding up the timelines. We're putting lots of people in the same room. We're adding romance. Isn't that accurate? But I personally am not mad at it in terms of entertainment. No, it's super entertaining. I think there's just a truth of the piece that's almost like undersold by that, that I I don't wish this show to do it per se, I because I like what it is. Um, it, it, it is what it is. And I, I think things should be what they are. But um, I do want someone to sort of celebrate that part of, you know, you don't need to be so like, 
highfalutin to be kind of really consequential. And I think that's actually where a lot of the power of international relations and government and all these things happen is at this, you know, this career civil servant level that's that's not actually that sexy. I wondered if some of the characters like Ronnie at one point had a larger part that got cut down. Which one is Ronnie? Ronnie is the young non-binary staffer who's just always around and uh, and has very few speaking lines. Yes, I've been curious about that character. Maybe season two. Have you guys finished season one? Yes. Did you? No. So you know what I was going to say, or second half of season one, but sounds like not. I think I have like two episodes left. There are only eight, save for them. Before we go, I think we, we haven't spent enough time talking about uh, Austin Dennison, the UK hot. foreign minister. He is hot. I'm sorry, what was the question? <laughs> He's got such a hot stance. He's always like kind of leaning forward like an athlete. Can spill whiskey on my pantsuit any day. You know what scene I really liked initially and now I don't like as much this at this point in the season is the scene where um, it's not in episode five, but he's basically like, no, I told you it was a crisis. I told you it was an SOS. And she's like, when on earth did you ask for help? You didn't. All right. Yeah, he said, I begged you to go to your president. I begged you. Yeah, yeah. And she's like, when? And I thought it was so hilarious at the time. And I liked that scene. But now in the episode, I'm like, but she's supposed to be the person who understands all these secret codes for everything. And she didn't pick that up. That seems like the per- the writer was really into writing that scene. And it was funny, but it actually is not tracking to the truth of the character. My other gripe now that we're talking about it is I feel like they bounced back way too quickly from the death in his office. <laughs> Not an everyday occurrence. <laughs> like they were just like, ah, and they were like giggling and flirting like immediately after that death. Like, oh, what a long day. Um, and I just like thought that was really odd. Also, she was very, I thought, not smart in how quickly she entered the room, which plays out later, right? Like she immediately runs back to be yeah. there above board. Just and leave. that just seems, again, I mean, maybe that is just actually a character choice, but, and that, that will play out. Like she's hunting for the drama because she wants to be in Afghanistan actually and not, you know, the UK. It seemed like a, a not savvy choice. She should have said very loudly, what's going on? As she entered back in, I was like, you don't enter so quickly and stealth. Yeah. That was the mistake. Just be like, I can't believe what's going on. Look people in the eye, be noticed. As you enter. Maybe shriek and faint. Make it make a scene. Yeah, faints. Yeah. Should we be the ambassador to the UK? I feel like we would be nailing this. We'd be having to go to coronation this weekend. That doesn't seem. <laughs> oh, no. It yeah, seems that would very be. tedious. <laughs> I've been trying to avoid coronation content, but I did think of this show again. And also, I think of uh, your wife whenever a woman is wearing a pantsuit and someone makes a big deal about it. Because, Chloe, you once told me that after Hillary Clinton uh, wore a pantsuit, your wife decided she never had to wear a skirt again professionally. It was wow. a wedding quiz question, actually. Oh, yes. Oh. Yes, which I got correctly. Uh, but... Uh, <laughs> But I, I saw Princess Anne interviewed this week and, and uh, they were talking about the coronation. She's like, I don't know what's going on. I, they, I'm just going with it. But they gave me this like military role and I get to be on a horse. She said, which sorts my dress problem. And I thought, you know, even Princess Anne doesn't want to have to think about wearing a dress. She just wants to throw on a uniform. That's amazing. Chloe, I think we have made it to the cringe fire. 
Are you ready? Let's do it. Let's do it. But thank you guys for sparking me watching this show. Oh, I'm so glad. You're the perfect guest. So thank you for for doing that. I always feel like it's a particular win when we get a guest to watch not just one, but a bunch of episodes of television. It's the best way to do it. I will say my life is not structured to support binging easily, but it was nice to be like, I'm sorry, I have a deadline. Yeah. I I love assigning TV as homework to friends. Yeah. Is there another show that you're binging right now, Chloe? As I said, my life is not very structured towards binging, mostly because the times when I you know, have to watch. It's when I'm with my son and he's watching and, you know, I'm sort of trying to be a parent too. And then when I, he goes to bed, I fall asleep. (laughs) So it takes forever. So I'm mostly honestly binging um, Taylor Swift content on TikTok at the moment. I'm just following the Eras tour vicariously. We're going in a couple, in a week. Oh, fun. It was my son's birthday present this year. Um, We're very excited. We're making friendship bracelets for the concert. We've got costume ideas in the works following the surprise songs the easter eggs all of it short length content i think is the winning aspect of that for me right now in my life what in the world are you finding super cringy right now that's such an interesting question because don't you kind of feel like we're almost in a post cringe era in that like perhaps a controversial thing to say to the hosts of cringe watchers but (laughs) it's not it's like the things that were cringy were it's like we've jumped cringe and we're just into like full-on you know fascism and nazism right like things that sort of would have been maybe borderline oh that's cringy but now it's just like full-on armageddon so what's an actual cringe because cringe is i I would think i think of as a little bit like a a slightly it's a step down from armageddon yeah (laughs) a few a few steps down perhaps okay one thing it's sort of armageddon but it's also cringy that actually i have been thinking a lot about um and speaks to our collective past at planned parenthood which is in this uh, Republican primary season in the post-Roe era, all of these uh, politicians who had previously endorsed overturning Roe are now, you know, completely terrified about the political consequence of that position. And they're all like trying to find a moderate, what they're calling a, a middle ground. And they're just running without any real sense of, you know, a position to, to claim what weeks do I said 12 weeks, 15 weeks, 18 weeks. And they're like failing at their messaging and its position is, you know, terrible, but it is actually like a reenactment of an episode of Veep. Did you guys ever see that? <laughs> I love Veep. I don't know which episode you're talking so about. So it's the but one I've seen where Selena <laughs> Myers is, I didn't finish the series because um, when I kind of came back to it, it was, it was in the Trump era and it like, was no longer that funny at that it's point. too real. It was like just like, yeah, it was like sad and dark. It's the episode where she's trying to come up with her abortion position and the satire, she's sitting in a room. She goes, I don't know, choose a week, 18 <laughs> weeks, 17, somewhere between 15 and 20. Where is it? <laughs> and sort of the, you know, the satire of how politicians, when they're thinking about politics instead of actual people's healthcare, what that looks like, they're literally playing it out. So it's actually quite cringy. I mean, it's terrible from a public health and human rights standpoint, right? I mean, any decision that is short of it coming down to the person who's pregnant and in consultation with their doctor is is a bad decision. But watching them just throw out these weeks as a satire and like reenact the, the scene from Veep is actually very cringy. You know, I think you're making a good case for their categorization of cringe, like cringe light, cringe heavy. I would put that in the cringe heavy, and, and it, but it's a perfect example. Well, I think it hits a lot of buckets. Yeah. <laughs> I think that there's a cringe light element of just how bad they are at some of those 
points. Yeah. And then the cringe heavy into Armageddon is the actual position. Yeah. Now Very all I can well think said. about are, are tampons. <laughs> like what, the, uh, what, what, because there was a scene in the diplomat where they pack her different levels of tampons. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> So what what kind of flow of cringe are we having today? Right. The flow of cringe. I love it. Chloe, is there an aspect of sex with sexuality relatedly that needs to be better portrayed in media? I don't know if need is the answer, but I would just like to have more lesbian sex in media. Hell yeah. I think we got to just have more than just the L word out there. Yeah, I would agree. You every few years you get a European film, Chloe. I don't know what <laughs> how, how greedy you want to be. There was this the blue is the warmest warmest color. color. Yeah, yeah. yeah, there was this hilarious YouTube thing. I think after that came out, where it was um, lesbians watching the sex scenes of Blue is the warmest <laughs> color. And this one, I think about it all the time. Of this one woman, she watches. I don't know if you remember. There's a scene where they eat all this pasta and eat. Oh yeah. Cakes. And the director apparently like was a very maybe even abusive director, mm. as I've read. I don't know, but um, but they were eating it, and they did take after takes. They're eating. They actually were eating like an insane Ugh. amount of pasta, and um, and then the next scene is this very intense sex scene, and um, this one woman watching it, she goes, "But they just ate all that pasta." <laughs> I was like, see, there just needs to be more like lesbian directed sex scenes. Yes. I actually think that transcends sexual uh, orientation because I think that sometimes when I'm watching films where, where on dates, people are having these huge meals and then they just can't get enough of each other. Well, Larry David's daughter had her comedy debut in New York Magazine writing about this very topic. So we will link both the video Chloe mentioned and that article in our show notes. On a happier note, do you have a favorite sex scene or a, a scene depicting sex or sexuality in uh, TV film literature? I mean, now I'm thinking about the pasta sex scene. On the subject of the canon of, le- of lesbian sex scenes, I-, I am reminded of a very formative one in my life, which is in high school in the 90s, there wasn't as much content as there is today and there's still not enough. So I was very obsessed with the movie Bound. I had this like, did you guys see that movie? No. Okay, well, this is going to be a little less exciting because you haven't seen it but maybe some listeners have but there's um I had like a setup where I'd like rent a movie and I'd like dub it with my own tape recorder like a VHS thing what for the movies I really liked and I had like a whole like homemade library and so I was for sure doing that with Bound because I definitely wanted to rewatch Bound and there's this one their first uh sexual encounter um it's like a sudden moment in the in the living room where you know she comes to Gina Gershon comes to fix something in the sink and then it sparks and it's very breathy and whispering and uh, I couldn't hear it so I start with the volume and I I'm putting the volume up and so my recording my VHS copy every time you saw that (laughs) scene you just saw the volume go all the way up to like wow in the middle of the first sex scene it was really humiliating to me as a 17 year old when I realized that other people would see that but um now I think now I think about it and I think it's like an amazing artifact of you know queer youth that is beautiful I think that was one of the best cringe fires we've had and you are of course a delightful guest a true woman and scholar gentlewoman and scholar and we appreciate you Chloe thank you for coming on I appreciate you guys I appreciate the chance to catch up with you guys and also to watch some tv yes i love so you fun. both it was so nice to see you both at the same time i i we should do more of this yes yeah, absolutely maybe not with the recording going on exactly <laughs> yes <laughs>
Thank you to our guest, Chloe Cooney. You can find her on Twitter at Chloe I. Cooney, C-O-O-N-E-Y. Our editor is Karen Y. Chan. Judith Walker created our logos and cover art. D.L. Dallas Engram created our original theme song, and you can find him on SoundCloud. You can always support the show by visiting patreon.com backslash cringe watchers. Subscribe today and get perks, including a shout out on the show. You can also always show us your love by rating and reviewing the show. And recently we've enjoyed your pitches as well for guests and topic ideas. Follow us at cringe watchers on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you for cringe watching with us. 